to the Blue Rose Film Podcast, a show dedicated to celebrating the ongoing mystery and dream that is cinema, and tracing film history through the decades via the films that have meant the most to me. My name is Jonty Cornford, and I'm a writer, editor, composer, music producer, and a lover of films. This week on the show, we're continuing along the narrative thread of David Lynch's career as a filmmaker, pulling up at part two of that narrative with his sophomore feature-length film. It earned Lynch his first recognition from the Academy Awards and launched him from the midnight circuit into the mainstream spotlight. Follow me into 19th century London and experience a story of empathy in the face of tragedy and horror. David Lynch's The Elephant Man. Stand up. Stand up. Turn around. Mister, why is your head so big, mister? <laughs> but if you come to know him... Have you always been the way you are now? You will begin to see beyond the perversion of his form. Are you in any pain? Are your parents still alive? Your father? Your mother? And discover the beauty in the beast. He is English. He is 21. His name is John Merrick. At no time have I met with such a perverted or degraded version of a human being as this man. Am I to assume, then, that he is ultimately incurable? Yes, sir. This hospital doesn't accept incurables. The freak hunting. This is monstrous. If you ask my opinion, he's only being stared at all over again. People pay money to see your monster, Mr. Treves. I'll collect it. Yeah, the monster, yeah, that freak. What was it all for? Why did I do it? And perhaps for the first time, you will understand the true meaning of courage and human dignity. I am not an animal. I am a human being. You're not an elephant man at all. You're Romeo. Anthony Hopkins, Anne Bancroft, Sir John Gielgud, Wendy Hiller, and John Hurt as The Elephant Man. Coming from Paramount Pictures. As always, a quick recap of the film. The Elephant Man retells the story of Joseph Merrick, played by John Hurt, a severely deformed man who lived in London in the late 19th century. 
He's found by Frederick Treves, played by Anthony Hopkins, a surgeon at the London Hospital, being kept by a brutish ringmaster as an attraction in a Victorian freak show in London's East End. Treves pays the ringmaster to take Merrick to the hospital for examination. His skull is severely deformed, to the point that he has to sleep with his head resting on his knees and would suffocate if he fell asleep lying down. After examination, Merrick is returned to the ringmaster, who beats him so badly that he is forced to call Treves for medical help. Treves takes Merrick back to the hospital. He is tended to by hospital matron Mrs. Mothershead, as the other nurses are too frightened of him. The hospital's governor is against housing Merrick, as the hospital does not accept what he calls incurables. To prove that Merrick can make progress, Treves trains him to say a few conversational sentences and part of the 23rd Psalm. The governor sees through this ruse, but as he is leaving, Merrick begins to recite the whole of Psalm 23. Merrick tells the doctors that he does know how to read, and has memorised the 23rd Psalm because it's his favourite. The governor permits him to stay, and Merrick spends his time practising conversation with Treves and building a model of a cathedral that he can see from his window. Merrick has tea with Treves and his wife, and is so overwhelmed by their kindness that he shows them his mother's picture. He believes that he must have been a disappointment to his mother, but hopes that she will be proud to see him with his new friends. Merrick begins to take guests into his room at the hospital, including the actress Madge Kendall, who gives him a copy of Romeo and Juliet. They play some lines from it, and Kendall kisses Merrick on the lips. Merrick quickly becomes an object of curiosity to high society, and Mrs. Mothershead expresses concerns that he is still being put on display as a freak. Treves begins to question the morality of his own actions. Meanwhile, a night porter named Jim starts selling tickets to locals who come at night to gawk at what he calls the Elephant Man. The issue of Merrick's residence is challenged at a hospital council meeting, but he's guaranteed permanent residence by command of the hospital's royal patron, Queen Victoria, who sends word with her daughter-in-law, Alexandra. However, during one of Jim's raucous late-night showings, Merrick is kidnapped. A witness reports this to Treves, who confronts the kidnapper about what he has done, and Mother's Head fires him. The ringmaster, named Bites, takes Merrick on the road as a circus attraction once again, during a show in Belgium, Merrick, who is weak and dying, collapses, causing a drunken Bites to lock him in a cage at night with some apes and leave him to die. Merrick is released by his fellow freak show attractions. Upon returning to London, he is harassed through Liverpool Street Station by several young boys and accidentally knocks down a young girl. Merrick is chased, unmasked and cornered by an angry mob. He declares famously that he is a human being, not an animal, before collapsing. Policemen return Merrick to the hospital and Treves. He recovers some of his health, but is dying of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Treves and Mother's Head take Merrick, accompanying Princess Alexandra, to see a magical pantomime. Kendall comes on stage afterwards and dedicates the performance to him, and a proud Merrick receives a standing ovation from the audience. Back at the hospital, Merrick thanks Treves for all he has done and completes his cathedral model. Saying it is finished, he lies back on his bed and dies. He is consoled by a vision of his mother, who quotes Lord Tennyson's Nothing Will Die.
Where are the children? Well, um, well, they're out with friends. And uh, here is Frederick's mother. And uh, these, these are my parents. Oh. Have such noble faces. Yes, I've, I've always, I've always thought so myself. Your mother? Yes, please. Oh, but she's... Mr. Merrick, she's beautiful. Oh, she had... She, she had the face of an angel. No, Mr. Merrick, no, no. No son as loving as you could ever be a disappointment. If only I could find her, so she could see me. Just lovely friends here now that perhaps she could love me as I am. I'm trying so hard to be good. Once again on this show, we're looking at a film that I didn't properly connect with the first time that I saw it. I guess I might have been expecting something a little more outwardly surrealist from David Lynch when I saw it for the first time, and was perhaps a little underwhelmed by how grounded and realistic the film is. But having explored David Lynch a lot more over the years since seeing The Elephant Man for the first time, I actually think that that first reading of the film was completely misguided and clouded by a blind desire to see more Twin Peaks or Mulholland Drive. Because The Elephant Man fits perfectly into the filmography that we're making our way through, just not in ways that are immediately apparent at first glance. Thematically and aesthetically, there is a lot that ties The Elephant Man to the rest of Lynch's body of work, and for whatever reason, it took me watching it a second time in preparation for this podcast to realise that. That is one of the wonderful things about films, though. They stay the same as you grow and change around them, and they can appear to be a completely different film to the one that you remember watching before. I had an experience similar to this in revisiting The Elephant Man, which, to be clear, doesn't actually mean that I didn't like it. I thought that it was emotional and rewarding, and I admired the formal qualities of the film greatly, but for whatever reason, it just didn't sing for me the way that the majority of Lynch's other works did for me on a first watch. That is no longer the case for me. It does, however, appear on first glance to be a strange combination of material and director, and the story of how Lynch became connected to this project is fascinating. So let's pick up from where we left off on our Eraserhead episode.
Like we covered on our Race Ahead episode, the overall reception that a race ahead received wasn't immediately positive, and it was only after spending time on the midnight circuit and playing to horror crowds that it really gathered a crowd of supporters. Weirdly enough, one of those supporters was filmmaker Mel Brooks, but we'll get to that. Because of the fact that A Race Ahead wasn't an immediate hit, Lynch immediately went to work on finding his next project, determined to make more films after taking so long to finish A Race Ahead. It was around this time that Lynch wrote his famous unmade script for a film that still has never seen the light of day, called Ronnie Rocket. Whenever he had meetings with studio executives about the film, he was reticent on details, as was becoming his M.O., and would speak vaguely about the already incredibly abstract script, describing the film as being about electricity and a three-foot man with red hair. Fellow Lynch devotees will no doubt immediately pick up on elements of Ronnie Rocket that would become Lynch staples, in particular the focus on electricity. Even the description of the titular Ronnie Rocket brings to mind Michael J. Anderson as the man from another place in the Twin Peaks universe. The screenplay for Ronnie Rocket is still available to read online today, and it's a fascinating piece to read and wonder what would have happened to David Lynch and his career were he able to make Ronnie Rocket immediately after finishing A Race Ahead. Ronnie Rocket was, unsurprisingly, proving to be a tough sell. The opening image, a raging wall of fire shooting 200 feet high on a theatre stage, set the tone for all that follows. There are so many surreal elements to the story that it would have been all but impossible to film in the late 1970s, when computer-generated imagery was still in its infancy. A bird with a broken neck does backward somersaults. Electrical wires move like hissing snakes. Romantic love triggers explosions in the sky and streamers raining down, and a talking pig walks on its hind legs. Ronnie Rocket is set in a land where black clouds race over a dark, soot-covered city, and we're immediately reminded of both the Philadelphia that David Lynch describes experiencing, and the facsimile of that description that we see in A Race Ahead. It weaves together two complex storylines. One follows a detective that travels into a forbidden zone known as the Inner City in pursuit of a villain who's hijacked all the electricity and reversed it so that it produces darkness instead of light, and the other tracks the sorry adventures of a 16-year-old boy who's a kind of Frankenstein's monster, subject to fits generated by electricity. Lynch has described the film as having to do with the birth of rock and roll, and Ronnie Rocket becomes a rock star who's exploited for financial gain, but remains uncorrupted. The central metaphor for the screenplay is electricity, and it erupts everywhere. It snaps and pops from electrical wiring shoots from fingertips, arcs and dances on train cables that stretch above the city. Woven throughout the script are elements that recur in Lynch's work and had already appeared in A Race Ahead, including peculiar sexual encounters, a dysfunctional family, and extravagant flourishes of violence. Lynch was passionate about Ronnie Rocket and was convinced that it was going to be his next feature-length project that he would attach his name to. When Chris Rodley asks him in Lynch on Lynch about this period in his career and the problem of what he was going to do next after a race ahead, Lynch simply answers, well, it was easy. It was going to be Ronnie Rocket. In the months following a race ahead's release, Lynch received a phone call from Marty Mickelson, who became Lynch's first agent. He loved a race ahead and wanted to represent Lynch and did everything in his power to get Ronnie Rocket financed, but it was ultimately a task doomed to fail. It's at this point that American producer Stuart Kornfeld steps in. Kornfeld was a student at the AFI's Producers Program where he focused his energies on directing workshops for women, 
Actress Anne Bancroft was a student there at the time also, and Kornfeld produced a half-hour short for her. After working with him on a second short named Fatso, Bancroft made him the producer when she expanded it into her feature directorial debut, also her only directorial credit. While this has never been confirmed by Ben Stiller, it is believed that Tom Cruise's portrayal of fictional film producer Les Grossman in Tropic Thunder was indeed based on Kornfeld. Hey, Tuggernuts, I've got you on speakerphone. I'm standing here with Les Grossman, and he is dying to tell you why he has apparently wiped his ass with the Tebow claws from your contract. We are flaming dragons. Speedman is with us now. For 50 million, you will get him back. Now you're going to get those. Who, who is this? And how'd you get this phone? We are flaming dragons. Simple Jack belongs to us now. I can't believe I'm still having this conversation. Oh, he does, does he? Hey, let me tell you something, shitbird. I've never even heard of your little agency. But if you think you can poach my client, $50 million, you know, see Simple Jack again because we kill him. This is the last horseman. Who is this? This is Flaming Dragon! Oh, okay. Flaming Dragon. Fuckface. First, take a big step back and literally fuck your own face! Pan-Pacific bullshit power play you're trying to pull here, but Asia Jack is my territory. So whatever you're thinking, you better think again. Otherwise, I'm going to have to head down there, and I will rain down on a godly fucking firestorm upon you. You're going to have to call the fucking United Nations and get a fucking binding resolution to keep me from fucking destroying you. I am talking scorched earth, motherfucker. I will massacre you. I will fuck you up. Kornfeld's graduating class of 1976 included director Martin Best, who encouraged Kornfeld to see a race ahead. I absolutely loved it, Kornfeld recalled. David kind of broke the code on how to do a dark movie, because he's able to go really dark, but still hit a transcendent beat at the end. He creates a frightening hole that you fall through, and under normal circumstances you'd be freaked out by the fall, but there's a certain peace underlying his work. I was totally blown away by a race ahead, Kornfeld continued. I knew David had gone through AFI, so I got his number from the school and called him and said, Your movie is amazing. What are you doing next? So we met in a coffee shop called Nibblers and started hanging out. He was poor at the time and was living on Rosewood, and I remember going to his place shortly after we met. He had one voice of the theatre speaker, and he played 96 Tears on his record player for me. We started having lunch once a week, and he was always fun and had the right kind of sense of humour. He gave me the script for Ronnie Rocket, which I thought was incredible, and I took it around but couldn't get anywhere with it. David had already experienced a negative reaction to a race ahead from mainstream Hollywood, and I told him, the main thing is that you've just got to get another movie going. It was then that Lynch began considering directing something that was written by another screenwriter. Anne Bancroft introduced Kornfeld to her husband, Mel Brooks, who hired Kornfeld to be his assistant during the making of his 1977 film, High Anxiety. The first AD on the film was a young novice named Jonathan Sanger. Born in New York, Sanger moved to Los Angeles in 1976, and his friend, filmmaker Barry Levinson, introduced him to Brooks, who hired him for High Anxiety. Kornfeld and Sanger became fast friends on the set of High Anxiety. The saga of the Elephant Man began in earnest when Sanger's babysitter, Kathleen Prilliman, asked him to read a script that her boyfriend, Chris DeVore, had written with his friend, Eric Berggren, while they were film students in Northern California. Both began their careers wanting to be actors, but turned to screenwriting after they happened across a book called Very Special People, which included a chapter on the Elephant Man. 
Born in Leicester, England in 1862 and afflicted with maladies that left him severely deformed, the Elephant Man, whose given name was Joseph Merrick, survived a brutal period of work as a sideshow freak before becoming a ward of the London Hospital, where he was nursed and protected by Sir Frederick Treves until he died at the age of 27. I was entranced by the script, Sanger recalled. I optioned it for $1,000 for a year, and they sold it to me with the condition that they got to remain part of the project as the writers. Kornfeld was excited by the script too, and after reading it, he immediately called Sanger and told him, I know the guy who's got to direct this. Then, he called Lynch and said, you've got to read this script. Lynch remembers these events slightly differently, recalling sitting at one of their lunches at Nibblers and, reaching the point at which he knew that he was never going to be able to make Ronnie Rocket, asking Kornfeld what he had in terms of other writers' scripts that he could direct. Kornfeld said that he had four, the first of which was The Elephant Man. Before hearing anything about any of the other potential projects and going off the name of the project alone, Lynch told Kornfeld that he wanted The Elephant Man to be his next project. During this time, the script also landed on Mel Brooks's desk. Kornfeld and Sanger had shopped the film to six different studios to no success and eventually gave it to Mel Brooks's secretary, who gave it to Brooks, who read the script over the weekend. Brooks was in the process of forming the production company Brooks Films, where he planned to finance and produce projects outside of the world of comedy. His existing company, Crossbow Productions, was just as synonymous as he was with comedy, and so he wanted to provide a space for more serious films to get made, while being distanced from the comedic shadow of Mel Brooks. Brooks loved the screenplay for The Elephant Man, and thought that it would be an ideal early picture for Brooks films, but also thought that it would be a great fit for director Alan Parker. Kornfeld insisted that it had to be directed by Lynch, and so Brooks agreed to meet up with Lynch over lunch. Lynch clearly made a good impression on Brooks because after that lunch meeting, Brooks was completely sold on the idea of Lynch directing The Elephant Man. The only hurdle between Lynch and the directing role for The Elephant Man was, in his mind, Mel Brooks eventually seeing a race ahead. Lynch thought that once Brooks finally saw his first film that the dream would be over. There was no way that Mel Brooks would still be on board with hiring him as the director for this film after he saw the horrors and trauma of a race ahead. But Kornfeld insisted that Brooks see a race ahead, and a private screening of the film was set up for Brooks, accompanied by Sanger. Lynch couldn't bear to be in the room with Brooks as he watched the film, so he waited outside with Kornfeld as the movie played. Eventually, the doors to the screening room flew open, and Brooks rushed over to Lynch with arms outstretched, embraced him, and said, You're a madman. I love you. You're in. Brooks told Sanger and Kornfeld where he planned to pitch the project with Lynch attached as the director, to which they replied that they had already sent it to all of those people, all of whom had passed. 
Brooks responded simply that those studios had passed to Sanger and Kornfeld, and that they wouldn't say no to him. And sure enough, Paramount and Columbia both called back. David Lynch talks about the way that Mel Brooks made The Elephant Man happen in Lynch on Lynch, as well as film critic Pauline Kael's role. Quote, he made it happen. It wasn't any of us. But Pauline Kael also played a part in that. I had an office right across from Mel's office at Fix, and we wrote another script under his tutelage. We spent maybe two months working, writing every day. And the script was sent to Paramount. Pauline Kael had a gig there, because of Warren Beatty or something. She would read things and advise on them. And I think when she was leaving her post, she said, if you make anything here at Paramount, make the elephant man. And I guess this one guy read it over a weekend and was really moved by it. And so it became a Paramount film. Any questions from Paramount about who this David Lynch guy was were quickly snuffed out by both Mel Brooks' unwavering support and his insistence that Lynch was the man to helm the project. Such was his power in the film industry at the time that he was able to let Lynch make the film from the very beginning. There were no studio people telling Brooks what to do, and so there were no studio people telling Lynch what to do. He was simply allowed to make the film with complete creative freedom. Casting the character of the Elephant Man became a top priority the moment that funding was secured for the film, and unsurprisingly, there were a large number of names floating around as potential actors to fill that role. A major star would help line up additional financing, and Dustin Hoffman was considered among others, but a major star would also have a harder time disappearing into the character. Sanger said that they had heard about John Hurt's performance in The Naked Civil Servant, and so they watched it with Brooks, and they were both impressed. Lynch himself was pushing for Jack Nance to play the role, but Brooks thought that he needed an actor to push Lynch outside of his comfort zone, something that Jack Nance wasn't going to do. So Brooks and Sanger started pushing for John Hurt. Hurt was in Montana, shooting Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate at the time, but he came to Los Angeles in early 1979 for the Academy Awards, being nominated as Best Supporting Actor for his work in Midnight Express. Mel Brooks called up John Hurt's manager and asked to see him while he was in town, and he set up photographs of the real Elephant Man blown up to wall size in his office with the plan to talk about the film with him but never mention the photos. During the meeting, Brooks started to pitch the film to John Hurt. They could see his eyes darting around the room, looking at the photographs. Hurt's manager was being very polite, saying things like, this sounds like a very interesting project, when Hurt suddenly interrupted him and said, I want to do this movie. Lynch stood up and shook Hurt's hand, and the two of them developed a special relationship right away. Despite a number of people worrying about Lynch's ability to handle a production of a big Hollywood film, Lynch was never once daunted by the prospect. He told Brooks that he wanted to do all of the makeup himself, much in the same way that he had a very hands-on approach to everything in all of his work up until that point. Brooks knew that Lynch was going to be busier than he was expecting, but he let him have a shot at it. So shortly after Hurt returned to the set of Heaven's Gate, Lynch travelled to Montana, where he made a full-body cast of John Hurt and got to work creating the prosthetics for The Elephant Man. With a finished script and a lead actor locked in, David Lynch, Jonathan Sanger and Mel Brooks headed to London to begin pre-production. Pre-production took place in Wembley, where Lynch set up a garage as his studio. Lynch was determined to get the prosthetics right, but that would prove to be more difficult than he had expected. 
Here's Lynch again in Chris Rodley's interview from Lynch on Lynch. The worst trepidation was before the film had even started because I was going to build the elephant man's makeup. I had an idea for a suit that would look really organic and wouldn't require five hours of makeup time every day. It wasn't just a suit, it was layers of stuff and it would have needed some blending between John Hurt and the suit every day. I had a house in Wembley and the house had a garage and that garage became my studio and I built this thing. I don't know how much time we had before shooting but I'd been working for several months in the garage and then I'd go to production meetings and location scoutings and casting and all of this stuff too and I had a concept for this makeup. But it was one of these things where two people are digging a tunnel, one at one side of the mountain, one at the other, and they hope to meet in the middle. This was just never going to happen. I brought John Hurt over one day and started putting this thing on him, and even as I was slipping on his head, even before it got there, we both knew that it was maybe a million miles away from happening. It wasn't that it looked wrong, but the material, instead of being flexible, was like concrete, and there was no way that John was going to be able to move in this thing. There was no way. And so he said something like, a valiant effort, or something like that. And at that point, it could have gotten really ugly. But I'll be forever thankful to John that he never said one negative thing about what I was trying to do. It was like those four dark days following Kennedy's assassination. I had the same number of dark days. It was so bad that I would go to sleep and have nightmares. And you know when you wake up from a nightmare how thankful you are? Well, I would wish that I would go back into the nightmare. That's the only time I really considered suicide as a way to stop the torment, because I couldn't crawl out of my body, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be someone else, crawl out and not have knowledge of that other person. And I couldn't get out of my body. I couldn't ever eat right, sleep right, or move. I was dying, 24 hours a day. Mel had heard that the makeup didn't work and was flying immediately to London, but he couldn't come for two days for some reason. So meanwhile, Jonathan Sanger got some names together and Chris Tucker's name came up. And Chris put me down for assuming that I could do this, and rightly so. Chris Tucker and I became good friends. By the time Mel came, I was so sure that I was about to be sent packing and that it was going to be over. All that Mel said was thank God for Chris Tucker. And David, you should have never tried to do that. You've got enough to worry about directing the picture. And that was the end of it. No more problems. And so Mel saved me again. Because of this hitch in the development of the makeup for the Elephant Man, Chris Tucker needed significantly more time to develop what would eventually be the makeup used in the picture. As a result, the scheduling of the film had to be moved around significantly. By this point, the production team had gotten to know the staff at London Hospital, and so Chris Tucker had the actual plaster cast of Merrick that was taken right after he died. They did at one point also have all of his internal organs stored in jars, but they were destroyed during World War II when a bomb hit and those jars were broken. And so, for the first time since Merrick had passed and the casts had been made, the cast left London Hospital and went to Chris Tucker's studio. The result is a seamless integration of Merrick's and Hurt's features, and one that is entirely authentic to the real person. Thank you. Good afternoon. Mr. Thomas, Mr. Rogers. Pull the curtains aside. He is English. He is 21 years of age. 
His name is John Merrick. Gentlemen, in the course of my profession, I have come upon many lamentable deformities of the face due to injury or disease, as well as mutilations and contortions of the body, depending upon like causes. But at no time have I met with such a perverted or degraded version of a human being as this man. Now, I wish to draw your attention to the insidious conditions affecting this patient. Can you see over there? Note, if you will, the extreme enlargement of the skull, the right upper limb, which is totally useless, the alarming curvature of the spine. Uh, would you turn around, please? Turn around, please. The looseness of the skin and the varying fibrous tumours that cover 90% of the body. And there is every indication that these afflictions have been in existence and have progressed rapidly since birth. The patient also suffers from chronic bronchitis. As an interesting side note, in spite of the aforementioned anomalies, the patient's genitals remain entirely intact and unaffected. Thank you. And his left arm is perfectly normal, as you see. So, then, gentlemen, owing to this series of conditions, the congenital exostosis of the skull, extensive papillomatous growth, large pendulous masses in connection with the skin, the great enlargement of the right upper limb involving all the bones, the massive distortion of the head, and the extensive area covered by papillomatous growth, the patient has been called the Elephant Man. Thank you. With the exception of Anne Bancroft and John Hurt, all of the casting was then done in London and overseen by casting director Maggie Cartier. Anthony Hopkins was given the lead role of Sir Frederick Treves, and Sir John Gielgud and Dame Windy Hiller came in to discuss secondary parts. Sanger recalls being surprised that actors of that calibre were even interested in meeting them, but that they were all nonetheless very happy to do so. Sanger said of the process, Wendy Hiller was delightful and John Gielgud was a sweet, self-effacing man and he had that beautiful voice and perfect diction. He loved the part and with him it was always whatever you want. David said that it was terrific working with John because you could just dial it in. You'd tell him you want a little bit more of something and he'd give you exactly what you needed. David was really impressed with his technical skills. Actor Freddie Jones, who we'll run into again on Dune and Wild at Heart, was a little harder to recruit, as Sanger recalls. David liked him right away. He's a dreamy, unusual man, and he fit into David's world perfectly. But Freddie said that character we wanted him to play was too one-note, and that he had to be more than just a guy who beats his defenceless creature. He wasn't turning us down completely, so David said, I really like you, let me track the script from the point of view of that character. David then agreed that the character's feelings for the Elephant Man needed to be more complex, so Freddy's input is definitely reflected in the final script. There are two scenes in the film that feature a cast of carnival freaks that were typical of that Victorian era. This obviously proved to be a particularly challenging piece of casting, not least because of the way that language and sensitivities around the subject of physical deformity has changed so much in the time since the Victorian setting of the film. Not only that, but the medical advances of the 20th century had dramatically reduced the incidence of the types of bizarre physical abnormalities that were so central to the 19th century freak shows. Casting director Maggie Cartier put out an ad in a London newspaper that read Live Human Freaks Required, which attracted a lot of heat for its insensitive use of language. 
The Nottingham Goose Fair has occurred annually in England since the Elizabethan period and continues to this day with over 420,000 people in attendance at the 2019 fair. One of its primary attractions used to be a freak show. While the film was still in pre-production, Lynch discovered that someone affiliated with the fair managed a set of conjoined twins. As Jonathan Sanger recalls, David was very excited about this, so we called this guy and he said, yes, I've got the twins, I manage them. So David and I drove up to the Goose Fair, which turned out to be this backwater place with a bunch of dumpy trailers. We go to this guy's trailer and knock, and a fat guy in a dirty t-shirt opens the door and he and his wife invite us in. This place was straight out of David's dreams. So the guy says, honey, go get the twins, and she went to the far end of the trailer and came back with a big bell jar filled with formaldehyde and the embryo of a set of dead twins. David was incredibly disappointed. Cartier found an agency in London called Ugly that provided the giant and several dwarfs who appear in the film. All of the other characters in the freak show were created by Lynch and his art department. The shoot began in September of 1979 and continued past Christmas into early 1980. Lynch wanted a big canvas to work with, so the film was shot on widescreen, a format customarily only used for westerns and epics at this time. The mood of London in the aftermath of the Industrial Revolution is oddly evocative of the worlds of both Eraserhead and Ronnie Rocket. All of them revolve around lots of smoke and soot, and it's a milieu Lynch is brilliant at manipulating for dramatic effect. The film was shot by cinematographer Freddie Francis, a two-time Oscar winner who played a central role in defining the look of the British New Wave films. Francis was the DP on a number of black and white classics in this period. The widescreen format, as chosen by Lynch, gives Francis an abundance of space with which to work and play with shadow and light. The Royal London Hospital was almost unrecognisable in 1980 as what it looked and felt like in the 19th century. And because a large and important portion of Merrick's story takes place in the London hospital, a suitable replacement needed to be found. Luckily for Lynch and his team, the Eastern Hospital in Homerton, a medical facility that was founded in 1867, was in the midst of downscaling its services by the time production began in 1979. The hospital had unused wards that were a perfect match for Lynch's vision of London Hospital during the Victorian era. It was in fact closed in 1982 and completely demolished shortly after. There are also a number of scenes set in London's East End where the most horrific slums of the Victorian era were located and short stretches of worn cobblestone street dating from that period remained when Lynch shot the film. These cobblestone streets are all long gone now and Lynch has said that it would have been impossible to make The Elephant Man in England after 1980. He got there just in time. Shooting a race ahead over a long period of time with a tiny crew in his own space was something that Lynch enjoyed greatly, being able to essentially live on set and breathe the world of the film 24 hours a day. But shooting The Elephant Man was something else entirely. There was a bigger crew, much tighter schedules, and a cast of established and highly professional actors waiting for his instruction and direction. 
Mel Brooks recalled, David was very directorial on the set, but right behind that facade was this childlike person thinking, yeah, we're making a movie. He acted like a grown-up, but the kid in him directed that movie. There's a scene where Anthony Hopkins' eyes well up and a massive tear falls down his cheek, and David got the angle and the lighting just right. Everyone loved David right away, but there were a few uprisings. John Hurt was always supportive of everything, and John Gielgud and Wendy Hiller were total professionals. If you're a private in the army and an officer walks by, you salute. David was the director, and they saluted him. Anthony Hopkins didn't actually try to get him fired, but he did complain, and he said, I don't think he has a total grasp of what has to be done here. Sanger recalled, Hopkins wasn't openly hostile, but he was aloof, and one day he called me into his dressing room and said, why is this guy getting to direct a movie? What's he done? He did one little movie, I don't understand. So Hopkins wasn't happy. The only time there was a real problem on set was when they shot a scene where Treves brings Merrick back home to meet his wife. Hopkins enters the doorway into a hall with a mirror on the wall, and Lynch wanted Hopkins to walk in and look in the mirror. Hopkins refused. He said, my character wouldn't do that. Lynch, in his straightforward way, tried to persuade him that it was not an illogical thing to do, but Hopkins just refused to do it. So Lynch finally had to say, okay, I'll change the shot, and it wasn't discussed again. At the end of the day, Lynch told Sanger that he would never make another movie where he didn't create the characters because he didn't want to be told what a character would or wouldn't do. Despite Lynch's boyish enthusiasm, combined with Mel Brooks and most of the cast and crew's unwavering support, Lynch found the shoot of The Elephant Man incredibly stressful. Compared to the solitude and complete freedom that he had on a race ahead, he now found himself in a much more collaborative space, despite still having Brooks as his ally in having complete creative freedom. Chris Rodley asks Lynch, in the book, about how he stayed focused despite this stress, how he managed to stay true to the idea at the core of The Elephant Man. Lynch responds, I'll tell you what kept me going, and that was pretty much John Merrick, the character of the Elephant Man. He was such a strange, wonderful, innocent guy. That was it. That's what the whole thing's about. And then the Industrial Revolution. Or you see pictures of explosions, big explosions. They always reminded me of these growths on John Merrick's body. They were like slow explosions, and they started erupting from the bone. I'm not sure what started the explosions, but even the bones were exploding, getting the same texture, and it would come out through the skin and make these growths that were slow explosions. So the idea of these smokestacks and soot and industry next to his flesh was also a thing that got me going. Human beings are like little factories. They turn out so many little products. The idea of something growing inside and all these fluids and timings and changes and all these chemicals somehow capturing life and coming out and splitting off and turning into another thing. It's unbelievable. During the final stages of the shoot, Alan Splett arrived and he and Lynch worked together, alone in a room, without conferring with the sound crew that was already in place. You will no doubt remember Alan Splett's name as the man responsible in large part for the hellish soundscape of Eraserhead in collaboration with Lynch. Jonathan Sanger said of Alan Splett, The sound people didn't know why Alan was there because people didn't understand what sound design was at that point. There weren't many sound designers in movies then and Alan was really one of the pioneers in the field. Splett won an Academy Award in 1979 for his sound design work on Carol Ballard's The Black Stallion. Among his innovations in that film was the placement of microphones to the underside of the horses during the racing scenes to capture the actual sounds of their hoofbeats and breathing. 
The first cut of The Elephant Man ran for almost three hours before being cut down to its final version that runs at two hours and six minutes. Lynch had showed some of the cast and crew a rough cut of the film, after which one crew member called Lynch up and said that he hated the film so much that he wanted his name removed from it. Despite both this crushing blow and an insistence from studio executives that the dream sequences that bookend the film needed to be cut, Mel Brooks had final cut on the film and he always deferred to Lynch, always going with whatever Lynch decided was right for the film. Brooks was a huge advocate of Lynch's and then took no credit at all on the final film because he didn't want his name to create any expectations about what the film was. During this time, Lynch's second wife, Mary Fisk, sister of close friend and collaborator Jack Fisk, was pregnant with twins and miscarried toward the end of the shoot. Once production on The Elephant Man was finished, with Mary back in America for additional medical care following her miscarriage, Lynch came up with another project for himself, something he called a fish kit. He purchased a mackerel, took it home, dissected it, laid out the parts, labelled them for ease in reassembly, and then photographed the display. Lynch has commented that he is obsessed with textures. He went on to make a series of kits that included a chicken kit and a duck kit. He also collected six dead mice for a mouse kit that he never got around to making, and he left the mice in a freezer in a house in Wilmington, North Carolina, where he lived while making Blue Velvet, a film that we'll arrive at very shortly in this series. It's around this time that Lynch also began actively pursuing photography. The photographs that he has produced over the past 40-odd years have two major enduring themes, women and abandoned factories. He has often commented on how compelling he finds the power and grandeur of machinery, and he developed a particular fascination with industrial ruins during his months making The Elephant Man in England. Post-production was still in progress when Mary Fisk returned to London in the early summer of 1980. The strict scheduling of principal photography had given way to a much more relaxed schedule, and the pair found time to take a week off together in Paris. In September of 1980, Lynch returned to LA with a finished print of The Elephant Man, and promotion began almost immediately. Lynch and Fisk were still living in their tiny bungalow on Rosewood when the billboard for The Elephant Man went up on Sunset Boulevard, and Fisk recalled that it didn't seem like much change when we first got home. David didn't start getting a lot of attention until after the film came out in October, so we sort of just picked up where we left off. Lynch has an impressive ability to do several different things at once, and on returning to LA, he appeared in director John Byram's film adaptation of Carolyn Cassidy's autobiography, Heartbeat, which starred his friend, Sissy Spacek. In that film, Lynch plays an artist and made all of the paintings that appear in that film. Lynch kept busy as The Elephant Man edged towards its release date and occupied himself with other things. He didn't go to the cast and crew screening, being far too nervous to attend, and he skipped the premiere of the film too, staying home instead to babysit his six-month-old nephew. The film was released on October 3rd, 1980, and netted eight Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, Director, Actor, Adapted Screenplay, Editing, Original Score, Art Direction, and Costume Design. Lynch's life changed drastically after The Elephant Man. Sissy Spacek recalled, Jack Fisk and I always knew how cool David was, but once he did The Elephant Man, we had to share him with the rest of the world. Once people work with David, they want to work with him again and get near the flame because he completely surrenders himself to the creative process. Mary Fisk recalls how thrilled he was when the film got these nominations. 
When we were living on Rosewood, I had a grocery shopping cart and I used to go to the market across the street from this exclusive restaurant called Chasen's. I could only spend $30 a week, then I'd walk the groceries home. One night, I looked over at Chasen's and saw this big limo pull up, and Diane Carroll and Cary Grant stepped out, which seemed very glamorous. A year or so later, a limo pulled up at Chasen's, and David and I got out for a party for the Elephant Man, with all the executives, actors, writers, and producers. David always had big dreams, but I've never seen dreams come true the way that they have for him. We literally went from rags to riches. Here's Lynch himself, recalling this time in Lynch on Lynch. I remember hearing about the nominations, but I didn't hear Freddie Francis's name, so I called him up, and we kind of commiserated for a little bit. But it was like going from zero to 60 in no time. Everyone knew that Robert Redford was going to win for Ordinary People, so you can just sort of relax and enjoy the experience. It was a great feeling, but I knew it had nothing to do with me. I was just doing the same stuff. You start to realise that what happens to a film is so much out of your control. It buoys you up some, but then you're also looking to go down the other side. Mel Brooks later heaped even more praise on both Lynch and The Elephant Man. David really is a bit of a genius, no two ways about it, and he understands the human psyche and emotions and the human heart. He's all screwed up too, of course, and he projects his own emotional and sexual turmoil into his work and assaults us with the feelings that he's being assaulted by. And he does that brilliantly in every movie that he makes. I love the guy, and I'm grateful to him for making what may be the best movie the Brooks film ever produced. Brooks has also spoken critically about Ordinary People winning Best Picture over The Elephant Man, saying, In ten years from now, Ordinary People will be the answer to a trivia question, while The Elephant Man will be a movie that people are still actually watching. I can't say that I disagree with Mel Brooks, and I'd also throw in Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull into the pile of films more memorable than Ordinary People nominated that year. In fact, Scorsese was sitting directly behind Lynch at the Academy Awards that year. I think a lot of what passed me by the first time I saw The Elephant Man and was underwhelmed by it has to do with the way that the film is directly about the human body's relationship with the industrial world. Factories, hospitals, electricity, smoke, soot, machinery. Very early on in the film, we see Hopkins operating on a patient in a startlingly gory image, visceral and shocking despite, or perhaps even because of, its evocative black and white aesthetic. Immediately, we see the human body at the mercy of modern machinery and industrialization, splayed out in a way that is immediately reminiscent of the upsetting image of the disemboweled baby at the climax of Eraserhead. By the time Merrick delivers his iconic declaration of humanity, on this rewatch, it struck me that he is not only declaring his humanity in defiance of the dehumanizing effects both of the medical community and the carnival freak show enthusiasts, he is also declaring his humanity in direct defiance of the increasingly industrialized world that is closing in around him, suffocating his already unfairly truncated life. It's this rich thematic vein that directly links the Elephant Man back to Eraserhead and forwards into some of the works that we'll be unpacking in the coming weeks. It renders the film not only as one of his most emotionally resonant, but also perhaps his most socially conscious and outward looking. 
Perhaps it's no surprise then that The Elephant Man remains to this day to be one of Lynch's most widely accessible and applauded films in mainstream film culture. It also offers us a glimpse at Lynch as the collaborative studio filmmaker, something that we got to see so little of as his career moved forward, for reasons that we'll get into when we unpack his time-making Dune. Another thematic thread that I pulled on with this viewing of the film was the idea that The Elephant Man is inherently about class. Hopkins, as Sir Frederick Treves, believes that he is saving Merrick from being nothing more than a freak show item to be ogled at by the lower class in the slums of the East End. But Treves then has to reckon with the possibility that all that he's actually managed to achieve is to present Merrick to an entirely different class of people with the exact same propensity to objectify and monetize Merrick's physical abnormalities. There's also a real sense that his attempts to teach Merrick language, manners and Shakespeare are all entirely misguided, the suggestion being that it's not at all his physical deformities that have placed him so low on the totem pole of life, but rather a society that view him as animal and other first, before simply seeing him as a human. It's a film that directly confronts our own prejudices and biases and remains as sharp in that critique today as it was in 1980. In direct contrast to Eraserhead, The Elephant Man was immediately embraced by critics and audiences and continues to be revered today as one of the most moving screen dramas of the 20th century. Vincent Canby wrote, Mr. Hurt is truly remarkable. It can't be easy to act under such a heavy mask. The physical production is beautiful, especially Freddie Francis's black and white photography. The Elephant Man has since been ranked among the best films of the 1980s in Time Out, where it placed 19th, and in Paste, where it placed 56th. The film also received five votes in the 2012 Sight and Sound polls. We'll leave our David Lynch narrative here for this week, and we'll pick it up again in a few weeks when we very briefly have a look at his next film, Dune. I have, of course, already covered this film on the show with guest Jack Sherlock, so if you want to hear all about the lore and storytelling of Dune, then I do suggest that you go back and listen to that episode. I will be revisiting that film again in a few weeks, however, just to tie the narrative forwards to Blue Velvet. But before we wrap up this week's episode, let's take a look at some of the other great films that came out in 1980. We, of course, have Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, a film that I've already covered on an episode of this podcast. I don't really have much else to say about this film, because I have said just about everything I have to say about it on episode one of the show, but it's a film that I still love revisiting. It's also a great film to show as a double bill, with Friday the 13th, another film that came out in 1980, as a sort of comparison piece to look at the two different routes that slasher films were about to take in the 1980s. If you ask me, I don't actually think that the Friday the 13th films really come into their own until the fourth instalment, but the original film is still a whole lot of fun to put on when you've got friends over and you just want some campy slasher background noise. Raging Bull is another classic that came out in 1980, and is a film that I will probably be covering at some point on this show. It features an absolutely transformative performance from Robert De Niro, and is up there as one of my all-time favourite Scorsese pictures. There's also, of course, Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back, which, if you're going to ask me, is the single film acting as a linchpin holding the entire Star Wars franchise together, but that's a rant for another time. I also have a big soft spot for Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill, John Carpenter's The Fog, and, of course, Flying High, which could also well be called Airplane, depending on what territory that you're in. Just after The Elephant Man is released, Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate 
a film featuring a performance from John Hurt, opens in November as one of the biggest box office bombs in cinema history, bankrupting United Artists and completely changing the way that the studios interacted with filmmakers throughout the rest of the 1980s. On the 29th of April, the master of suspense, Sir Alfred Hitchcock, passes away peacefully in his home, aged 80. The four highest grossing films worldwide are The Blues Brothers, Flying High, The Gods Must Be Crazy, and of course, The Empire Strikes Back. As always, please make sure to give this podcast a friendly review wherever you're catching it and to share it with a friend. If you like this show and you want to see it reaching more people, the easiest way for you to contribute to that is just by writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. A quick shout out to Adrian Drayton, who rated the show five stars and said, love Jonty's deep dives into the classics. Thanks, Adrian. Really means a lot. If you want to get in touch and let me know what you thought of The Elephant Man, or really any other film that we've covered on this show, you can either find us on socials or you can email us at bluerose.filmreview at gmail.com. If you don't already follow the show on Instagram, that's a great place to connect with me and a whole bunch of other people that love films. My first short story collection, called Where Lies the Strangling Fruit, is available to buy on paperback or Kindle on Amazon. I'll have a link for that down below. Thanks to producer Ritterman for our theme music, and thanks to Acast for hosting this podcast. That's all for now, and I'll see you next week for another episode of the Blue Rose Film Podcast. <laughs>